our view of God, whether affirming in his belief or denying his existence, has consequences. It shapes us in some way. It shapes us on an individual level, but we understand that. But it also shapes the society and culture and community and church that we are most involved in. So going back to the original question, what do you think about when you think about God? Do you think about God's love? Do you think about God's power? Do you picture a loving father or a stern judge? What characteristics come to your mind first? Because your perception of God, whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, is shaping every aspect and part of you. This morning, we are continuing our sermon series, When in Romans. We're diving into this deep, theologically driven book that Paul wrote to the ancient Christians in the city of Rome. Now, this book, some people love, some people are afraid of, some people just don't like. Some people understand it or think they understand it. Others, it just, their eyes glaze over because it's so rich with theological ideas. And so what we're trying to do is take a topic, take a phrase, take an idea and dissect it, to understand it a little better, to try to get behind what is Paul actually saying in these words. What Paul thinks about when he thinks about God becomes very evident in the very first, some of the very first, some of the very first verses of Romans. Romans chapter 1 verse 17. He says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, Some scholars believe that this idea, this one verse, is kind of the bottom line for all of Romans. In fact, they believe that this is the key. If you can understand, if you can unlock this key, you have access to the rest of the book of Romans. The scholars then go on to say that Romans is one of the most important books, if not the most important book in the Bible. Obviously, this is opinionated, but the reason they say that is because of the spread of impact that Romans has on modern and ancient day theology and Christianity. In fact, scholars then take one more layer and say the book of Romans is the most important literature of all literature of all kind because of the impact that Paul's theology in Romans has had on human civilization and theology, understanding of God. So take a couple steps back. It boils back down to this verse. Regardless if all of that is true or not, this verse right here, Romans chapter 1 verse 17, is arguably one of the most important verses for us to understand. It's what comes to mind when Paul thinks about the creator of the universe. It is the tiny seed in which the giant tree of the book of Romans will grow. And if we can understand it, at least at its base level, what is Paul trying to communicate to us, then we have a better footing for the rest of the book of Romans. So, righteousness. That's the idea, that's the phrase, that's the concept we're trying to understand. Righteousness. What does righteousness mean? 
A basic definition of righteousness could mean to be fair, to be honest, to be just. It's about following a certain standard. Another word that you may or may not like is conformity. That's what righteous is, to be conformed to a certain standard. And when we talk about righteousness in the context of God, it means living in a way that matches God's perfect and holy character. I'm going to step down here because the screen is blinking at me, and it's very distracting. There we go. <laughs> okay, so when we talk about righteousness in the context of God, we're talking about the idea of conforming ourselves to a certain standard by which God has established. The whole book of the Bible is if you live by the standards, if you conform your life to the standards of God, you will live a blessed life. If you choose not to conform your life to the standards of God, there will be consequences and they'll be negative in the end. They may look good at first, but they'll ultimately be negative. Let's take one more step in defining this word righteous. This is actually a very common word not used in religious circles before Paul adapts it. We don't really hear the word righteous very often outside of the church, do we? I mean, I don't. I don't talk about righteousness in most contexts outside of my Christian faith. But for Paul's world, this was a common word. You might hear it, for example, in the marketplace. Imagine a woman goes to the market to buy some grain. She goes to a merchant's table, and on his table, he has a scale that would have looked something like this. On one side of the scale, he would have placed a metal weight. This would eventually give him a translation of how much she would need to pay for the weight of grain that he's going to balance on the other side. So the weight goes on, he pours the grain, and you know how scales work. They eventually will come to be even, balanced, conformed to each other, or righteous. This is righteousness, when the scales of a balance come in perfect harmony with each other. And now Paul is going to capture that idea and try to explain the gospel to us. And what he's trying to get us to understand is that God is teaching us that his absolute holiness, his perfect standard, is the standard that God is measuring each of us by. Think about that again. The requirement for us to be righteous in the eyes of God, to be accepted in the eyes of God, is we have to match God's perfectness and God's holiness. God is on one side of the scale, we're on the other side of the scale, and we have to find that righteousness with God. Now, I don't know about you, but that is, that seems and is impossible. To think, it's absurd for me to think that I could match God in his perfectness, that I can match him in his holiness, that I can match the creator of all things that are good, the source of all goodness, that I could match him in goodness. There is no imagination in which you can reach that level, no matter how good you are, no matter how much good you put into the world, to imagine a, a world in which you can match God's perfectness and holiness is absurd. The scales will always be imbalanced. It, what it reminds me of, you remember, this was a couple years ago that these got popular. They're like memes that would go around. 
It would be like a mom that is trying to make a birthday cake for her daughter. So she goes online, she goes like on Pinterest or something, and she finds this like perfectly made, professionally made birthday cake. Maybe it's like in a, the shape of a princess or an underwater scene or a unicorn or something to that effect. So she gets all of the instructions, she gets all the ingredients, she goes home, she bakes it, and it looks something like this. <laughs> and the, the joke or the meme would be like, nailed it, like, <laughs> I got it, look at me, I'm doing great. But whenever I think of this scale, this me trying to match the righteousness of God, this is how I feel. Like there is no imagination in which I can get myself to a place that I could actually match that. Divine holiness, God's divine holiness means that he is morally perfect, that he is personally flawless in his being. In his words, in his actions, in his judgments, right? That's what we talked about last week when we talked about judgment. It's actually good news that God is the one judging you because his judgment is true and honest and right. It's righteous. You want that. You want God to see your heart. You don't want what somebody else thinks they see in you. So we are then measured by this standard of perfection. And whenever we hit that scale with God, we are left wanting. Or, as Paul will say in a couple of chapters, chapter 3, that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. You will never match it. Do you, like, do you feel the weight now? It's like, okay, so what? So what do I do? How am I supposed to have joy? Why do I come here and praise a kind of God that is going to match me to a standard that I could never reach? And that is the importance of Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Because of two small hidden words that are hidden in this verse, Paul writes, for in it the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God make an enormous difference in how we're to understand what Paul is teaching to us here. What this means is that the righteousness that we desperately need to find in order to have acceptance with God, in order for those scales to be balanced, is actually something that's given from God himself and given through this thing that Paul will lay out as the gospel. It's an impossible standard that you must meet, and you are met through the impossible gift of Jesus. That context of of God is telling you, is a hint to us, it's a reminder in our faith of whose righteousness God's grace is coming from. It makes us fully dependent upon God. He is setting the standard by which we will judge, and then he is providing the amount to pay that judgment. And every single human Remember, there's no hierarchy in faith. Every single human being must be clothed by God's own righteousness in order to receive his acceptance and his presence in our life. Not our righteousness. Isaiah talks about our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. We have nothing to really offer God whenever you compare it to that scale. But God provides us the righteousness that we need through his gospel. And when we are judged by God, right, we talked about this last, pe- last week, 
Some people make the mistake of believing that what I need to do in order to balance my scale with God is I just need to get as close to perfection as possible. If I can just work really hard to say the right things, to do the right things, to be the best person I can be, then, you know, it'll be in balance, but I'm close. This was the problem with the Pharisees. You walk the line, you stay by the law, you do everything to absolute perfection, and in the process, it becomes what you are able to accomplish, not what God is able to do through you, not the gift that he has given you. Here's the other mistake. Some people will say, well, I am not going to go that route. Instead, I will realize I will never reach perfection. I will never be able to balance those scales. But as long as I'm better than that person, I must be doing pretty good. If I can just look over the aisle and see somebody's sin or life or whatever that is not matching mine, then I must be pretty good. But that's not how this thing works. God is not measuring us based on other people's obedience and holiness. God is not measuring us based on what we can do, our own righteousness. God's measurement is his perfect holiness. And going back to Paul, whenever we're measured against God's standard of perfectness, we will always be left wanting. We all fall short of God's glory. And so what today is about is answering this question. Whenever Paul says the righteousness of God, what's supposed to come to my mind? Whenever I think of God, what characteristics of God should be coming to my mind? And as I meditate and give my life to these realities, it will shape my faith, it will shape my life, it will shape my interaction with other people. And so using our text this morning, When we think of the righteousness of God, Paul wants us to imagine this as an attribute of God, first and foremost. Righteousness is something that God just has. This is in his intrinsic nature. God is righteous. It's not something he strives for. It's something that is produced in and out of him and pours out. And all scripture proclaims this truth. Jeremiah the prophet will say in chapter 12, you are always righteous, God. The psalmist says in Psalm 129, the Lord is righteous. These are just things and claims of what God is. And when we say righteous as an attribute, what we're imagining, let me boil it down to its bare basic. It's the idea, it's the truth that God is always right. There it is, period. There's nothing else that needs to be going to be attached to that. God is always right. No matter how it looks from my human perspective, God is always right. No matter how confused I might be in the thick of life, God is always right. No matter how uncomfortable life's circumstances are or his teachings in my life and what they're doing inside of me, God is always right. He's always right. There's a cute story I heard of this, uh, just a illuminate this idea. There's a man who is criticizing creation. He was looking around and talking to his buddy and saying, man, God did this all backwards. For example, look, look at these oak trees with the acorns, little acorns hanging on these thick leaves. And look at these watermelons holding on to by these thin little vines. If I were God, 
I would put the watermelon on the thick branches, and I would put the little acorns on the thin, flimsy vines. And about the time he finished that, an acorn fell and hit him on the head. God is always right. God is always right. Joseph probably thought, man, God really messed this thing up. Whenever God had given him a vision that he would rise to a place of power and deliverance, instead he sold by his brothers into slavery. Man, God really messed this up. It wasn't actually until towards the end of that story, much later in his life, through many obstacles, that Joseph was able to look back and say, man, God was right. He eventually got me to the place that he had promised me. Or how about Gideon, who led his people to victory, a man self-professed to be the weakest member of the weakest family in the weakest tribe. And all of Israel probably looked at Gideon and said, man, God messed this one up. He botched this one. No redemption from this. But when Gideon tore down the idols and led God's people to victory, all Israel had to admit God was right. When Jesus' limp body was taken from the cross, placed inside of a tomb, and all of the disciples, in realizing his death and it's sinking in, they go to the upper room, they seal the doors, they lock the windows, and they cried out, God, you missed the mark. God's glory blew it this time. It wasn't until three days later that God's glory came busting through that tomb, and all of the world fell to its knees and said, God, you were right. God is always right. It sounds so simple, and yet it's so difficult in the throes of life and hardships. But this is what Paul was saying. And let me tell you what that means. Let's get real practical. If God is always right, if we believe in God's righteousness, what that means is that we can trust him. If God is always right, we can always trust him. At times whenever we can't understand, God, I trust you. When problems hit us that we don't think we deserve, God, I trust you. When temptations come that we don't think we can overcome, God, I'm trusting you. When anxiety begins to erode our self-confidence, God, I am trusting you. In those darkest moments of our life, we have to remember the idea from Paul that God is always right and he can always be trusted with your life. And if God can always be trusted, then we should always be willing to obey him. During World War II, General Montgomery was named commander of the forces in North Africa. He was told his purpose was to go into the war front and pull the allies out to deliver them. And he gathered together his subordinates and he told them this, he said, orders no longer form the basis for discussion, but action. Orders no longer is about discussion. It's now about action, meaning essentially it's time to trust me. Even if you don't trust me, you got to trust me now. This is no longer a discussion. It's time to do some things. So whenever you are in the throes of financial worries, you're living paycheck to paycheck, you're swallowed by debt, you don't know where your next breakthrough is going to come through, how you're ever going to get ahead of this thing. It's trusting when God says, I will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory of riches in his glory in Jesus Christ. Whenever we are afraid of the future, 
Maybe you don't even know your future. It's a black hole of what could be. You're wondering, you're scared, you don't know what your next step should be. It's trusting when God says, the Lord has gone before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Parents. We got new parents. We got old parents. We got upcoming parents. We got parents in between. (laughs) They're just trying to, parents, right? We are always struggling in our own ways. It evolves, it changes in every stage of our children's lives. It's trusting what Proverbs says, to train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's trusting that. Whenever you experience grief or loss, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a child, maybe it's someone you looked up to, a mentor, you're hurting, there's a hole in your heart the size of that person, and it doesn't seem like anything will fill it. It's trusting what the end, the last book in the Bible says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying. How often Do we hear God's words just like this? Someone reads it out to us. We read it in our Bible, in our Bible study. We hear it in our darkest moments, and instead of trusting, we want to debate it. Discuss it over, mull it over, measure it against our opinions, filter it through our feelings. The orders of God are not a basis for discussion. They're a basis for action. If I trust in the righteousness of God, that God is always right, then I know I can trust him. And if I can trust him, then I'm willing to obey him. Because God is always right, we should be willing to obey him. And when God spoke of the righteousness of God, he was speaking of it as an attribute of God. This is just the nature of who God is. He is always right. Sometimes we can't hear his rightness over the screaming sound of our inner voice or the world telling us something different. But it's trusting God is right. Another part of this, when I think of the righteousness of God, Paul wants us to imagine it as an activity. This isn't just who God is, but this is what God is doing in the world. Paul will develop this idea a little bit later in Romans chapter 3. He'll say, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested It's here. It's a person. It's talking. It's doing things in the world. It's delivering people. And that is an Old Testament idea. The righteousness of God appears in the Old Testament as well. Isaiah talks about it of uh, Israel, righteousness delivering them from the bondage of Egypt into the promised land. The righteousness of God is an activity of deliverance, not just an attribute. The righteousness of God is an activity that is delivering man from the bondage of their sin. And in our context, it's in the activity of Jesus Christ, redeeming us. Righteousness is not just who God is, it's what God is doing in the world. Another story, and I don't know how true this one is. Um, I heard the story, and I did a little research on it. Couldn't find much beyond it. But the point of it gets across all the same. There's a leader of the mafia named Terry Teague who was on trial for murder. So when he learned that a man on the, the, one of the jurors' name was Fogarty, 
I'm already doubting the validity of the story of the guy named Fogarty, but all the same. He learned about Fogarty being on one of the jurors, and so he says, he gets one of his henchmen and says, hey, go pay him off and get him to hold off on manslaughter instead of murder, right? Let's lighten the load a little bit. So the trial was held, the judge's instructions were given, the jury retired um, to the deliberation room, they were in there for a long time, eventually they came out and the verdict was manslaughter. So Teague, overjoyed, ran to Fort uh, Fogarty's side, uh, pumped up and said, man, how was it in there? Was it a fight in there? It was terrible, Fogarty responded. The other 11 guys, they wanted to acquit you, but I held out for manslaughter. This is what the righteousness of God looks like to me. The world is holding out for a conviction of guilty. Satan is holding out for a conviction of guilty. Even our own conscience at time convicts us. But God wants to acquit us. God wants to set us free. God wants to liberate us. That's what the righteousness of God means. That whenever it looks impossible... God balances that scale, and he does it through the person of Jesus. This was um, first publicly made known through Martin Luther. Many of you might know Martin Luther. He is, uh, some consider him the father of the Protestant movement. He actually was converted with Romans chapter 1 verse 17. He read this verse and he saw something that not many people saw, and it's a lot of what we're talking about here, that the righteousness of God is provided through faith in Jesus Christ. That if if Martin Luther put his faith in Jesus, that he was then justified by God, which sounds commonplace for us, but in Martin Luther's time, this was completely different than what he had been taught. This righteousness outside of himself or outside of an establishment, this thing that could be accessed by all people. Martin Luther says that his, his heart was flood with light whenever he realized this. He called this kind of righteousness a foreign or alien righteousness, meaning it was something outside of him. That Luther, Martin Luther learned that trying to be good alone wouldn't save him. That all goodness comes from God. It is a gift given and it can be freely received. The righteousness of God helps us see our mistakes. It helps remind us of the imbalance. But the righteousness of God is also providing the weight that we need to be righteous with him again through our belief in Jesus. The righteousness of God is an activity. Finally, the last one, When we think of the righteousness of God, we think of it as an affirmation. An affirmation. And you really get the idea of God's righteousness as the ultimate victory whenever you read the next verse. Chapter 1 of Romans, verse 18. We talked about this last week where the wrath of God will be revealed from heaven and will come down on the ungodly and the unrighteous which sounds really bad, (laughs) and it is if that scale is imbalanced. 
But we've already established that God's righteousness is an activity. And whenever we are balanced and justified before God, what this ultimate victory means is that all sin, all of Satan's devices in our life, all brokenness that exists, all evil and darkness that lives in my heart, that lives in my neighborhood, will be eradicated and defeated by the Creator once and for all. That Jesus will nail it, will take it to the grave, and it will stay there, and Jesus will rise victorious over it. God's righteousness is not just an attribute that he's right. It's not just an activity that he is doing through the person of Jesus. It's an affirmation that God will be victorious in the end. And there are going to be times in your life whenever you are going to doubt that. Whenever it's going to look like God is about to be checkmated in a game of chess. Like evil and the world will finally win. But the Bible proclaims in Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. It's been written. It's been determined. The righteousness of God has already been established. And so, as summary, whenever you imagine what is the righteousness of God, Whenever I think about God, what should my mind go to? Because where our mind rests, what we think about God is shaping our life. It's shaping our decisions. It's shaping our interactions. It's shaping our faithfulness. So what should I be thinking about? Paul says you need to be thinking that God is always right. This is an attribute of God. You have to trust that. Trust that God is always right. And if you can trust that, then you, it becomes easier to obey his teachings. It's an attribute. The righteousness of God, according to Paul, is an act. It's an activity of that righteousness. It's not just a characteristic that we are down here looking at how great God is, but God is balancing those scales in our life through the gospel of Jesus. That he is walking with his people and saying, you are going to meet my standard and you'll do it through this person of Jesus. You will be justified by him. And the righteousness of God is an affirmation. It is trusting that God's righteousness will reign supreme in the end. So how do we know these things are true? Well, Paul says that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So that word revealed there means that God has shown us through the person of Jesus Christ. We didn't discover righteousness on our own. It's not something we conjured inside of us or we found in a book or was taught to us from something on the outside. It was given to us. It's revealed to us. And now we can either accept it or not accept it to be true. But if you do accept it to be true, that God truly is righteous, you have to be willing by faith to bet your life on it. And that's how Paul it's going to start off this letter to Romans in this righteousness of God, asking you that question. Are you willing to bet your life on it? Are you willing to bet your life on the fact that God is always right? Despite circumstances, despite what you actually feel, despite what the world is screaming at you, trusting that God is right, and you're willing to obey him. Are you willing to bet your life on that? Are you willing to bet your life 
on the fact that God is going to liberate you from the bondage of your sin? Or are you just going to continue trying to do the best on your own? Not living by Jesus or the standards of Jesus, but trying to justify yourself, either through your religion, through your own morality, through something else. Are you willing to bet your life on the fact that God will ultimately win in the end? That he will be victorious over all life and death, all goodness and darkness? Or are you just hoping to the end that you're right? That you are good enough? That all of it was good enough? Paul wants us to understand the righteousness of God is understanding these aspects of God because it will shape how we read the rest of his letter to the Romans. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this time that we have to be in your presence, to hear about your goodness. And God, I pray that our hearts and our minds have been open to what the righteousness of God means. Father, that this is not something that we are able to contribute to directly, that you are righteous in yourself. You provide for us the things we need to be seen right in your eyes. Father, help us lay down all of the things we try to do to be accepted by you. Help us lay down our style of worship. Help us lay down our traditions. Help us lay down our faithfulness to your word or uh, or any other attribute, the mission, how much we give, what we look like to our neighbors. Lay all of these things down because none of it matches the righteousness that's found in you and you alone. Father, help us be justified by Jesus, the activity in which your righteousness is playing out in our life. Help us look to Jesus as our Savior, trusting that he will have ultimate dominance in the end, that he will reign as king and creator. Father, help us bring this lofty idea down into our practicality, into our day-to-day, as we interact with people, as we learn to trust God, Father, help us be faithful to you as you continue to be faithful to us. We say this all in the name of our Jesus, the means of your righteousness. Amen.